0: Hello and welcome to another War Stories with B-Rack. Um, it is November 8th, 2020. i I'm got a nice warm cup of coffee and I'm going to continue with episode 6 um, explaining some stuff. In today's episode I plan on um, giving a really brief chronological story, but then I really want to dive into the details of a patrol. Um, because I'm sort of just saying things. And, uh, one of my buddies who was in the army, uh, Rangers, he basically told me, Hey, like normal people aren't going to understand when you say, Oh, we jumped on a patrol. We went here, we jumped, you know, so I'm going to try to get into the step-by-step procedure and sort of what it's like to patrol in the city, um, unchronologically. So it's just going to be data. Um, but so when I left off, I think that we had just had the day with a very tense situation in our platoon um when we lost three marines from golf company when a humvee was hit by an ied and that was somewhere in mid-november um after i had taken a vacation to a random army base and was exposed to a completely different type of war i guess that's some people's war but uh so we the lance corporal underground is almost always right and so we started hearing murmurs and rumors through the Lance Corporal Underground that there was going to be a big battle coming up and that we were going to um well first there was a rumor that we were going to get sent home early and uh, my parents can attest to that they were told that we were going to get sent home early I might have mentioned that in the last episode but then it came down like no, actually we're going to uh, we're gonna clear the city house by house, street by street, Fallujah style or Huey City style. And obviously we were all stoked on that because um the Battle of Fallujah was a huge victory for the Marine Corps, a huge victory for the United States. Um it was it was one of the rare situations of black and white where the bad guys occupy the city. Most of the civilians evacuated the city. We gave them a chance to evacuate because we didn't want to take, you know, we didn't want to hurt innocent people as much as we could. And the bad guys stuck around, and we basically killed every single one of them. I think the Marines killed, like, between two and 3,000, and they only lost 91 because the safest time for Marines is when you're getting some. It's the kind of patrolling around that I'd say is when you're really just at risk because you can get hit from every direction, you're not paying attention all the time, but when you're clearing house by house, street by street, and they had tanks and and a couple army brigades with Bradleys, you know, they were able to take care of business. And so we had heard through the rumor mill that we were going to get augmented by 2-4, so that's 2nd Battalion, 4th Marines, um, and they... Uh, we're on a mew, so they're floating around on boats and then they came. And I remember watching them from the old TCP uh, with CH53 helicopters with giant like cargo bags hung underneath them, like slung underneath them. I mean, probably could probably fit like a car inside the bag, like massive bags of just boxes and supplies and ammo and building supplies. And they basically, they set up their base on the other side of the river to the south of Fox company. Um, And I just watched all day, helicopters fly in, drop some stuff off, fly out, fly in, drop some stuff off, fly out um, while they set up. And we also heard that we were gonna get tanks. Um, We also heard, and they began, um, actually they didn't begin it until right before, but we heard that they were gonna berm around the city. We were going to put our scout snipers from the battalion out in the desert to make sure nobody goes over the, um, the berm in or out. And then we were going to basically lock down the city and then clear it house by house, street by street. We were going to get tanks. We were all really excited because we wanted a little bit of payback for all the casualties that we had taken. So I'm going to leave that there. And now I've got a list right here this is the best of my knowledge i'm going to try to stick to this and try to give a good explanation of a typical patrol obviously there were weird ones where they're like hey jump in the back of the truck with this platoon because we're going to go down to this random village in the middle of nowhere and try to clear it or do something or whatever do a blocking position for this tiny little operation Or, um, if you watch the YouTube video that I just posted, like, hey, you got to go clean up after special forces because they caught guys sleeping in RAO. Um, so, but the typical patrol, what we did for those two weeks when we were on the patrolling cycle, um, it, it started with the warning order. And so when you're doing normal operations, like a division fighting a big enemy, like know world war ii style or even desert storm style you get a or the invasion of iraq or afghanistan you get a warning order they go hey unit leader whether it's a squad sized unit or a platoon or even a company or battalion or it could even be a whole division like stand by in the next six hours you're going to get an order to clear this city so start taking a look at it you know get yourself oriented to the map understand the situation what are your adjacent units what are your supporting units? Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll get a little bit into that. And so we replaced the warning order because it usually, it was like a thing. You would get it. You'd get called in the office and they would tell you. it. So they replaced that with a schedule board. And if you've read anything about counterinsurgency operations, which I had read the pubs for, you basically need a constant presence and you need overlapping AOs. So a good example of that is Echo Company was to our north. And instead of having a street or a northing where we neither of us cross it, we actually overlap by a couple blocks in either direction. And we have, I mean, just like uh, you could say, I don't know if police do the same thing in New York City, but you basically had, yeah, they had a different commander than us, but we overlapped for couple blocks in each direction um so the schedule was pretty well thought out and and this is something that i really agreed with and i've mentioned it before that a lot of people were kind of tired and they were kind of pissed off like why do we always got to be patrolling and stuff and it's sort of common sense you just got to do that you got to always have boots on the ground you got to always be out there um so what so then it would usually be the squad leader and our point man would go before the rest of the squad. They'd go to the briefing room, and they would write, They would draw out a, uh, a map overlay. So they'd take a clear piece of uh, like cellophane or cellophane. I don't know. The stuff that you use on like uh, the overhead projectors, for those of you that are my age or older, um, that teachers used to use back in the day. You basically tape one of those up on the map. You draw your route out um and then you that's what you give to uh the like we take a copy and then we also give a copy to the the command the control the coc command operation center and that way they they know where we're going to be at all times they have a general understanding they can look at it and say okay yeah that's covering the sector that we need covered in this patrol um And then they'd be finishing that up as the rest of the squad came into the briefing room. um, Which, if you watch the video that I posted, there's like a big map on the board. And it it kind of had like church pews, almost. So we all come in there. And we start doing our radio checks and everything during this time. Those of us radio operators. And then squad leader gives us the brief. And there's a certain... um, like the Marine Corps, we have a certain way that you give the brief and O-SMEAC. So orientation, situation, mission, execution, admin, and logistics and communications. And so the O is orientation. Obviously, we we knew where we were, so it wasn't as important. It's like, this is this is Haklania. We're in Iraq. Um situation was kind of like you went over hey what's what's the worst thing that can happen on this patrol uh you know what's the worst thing the enemy can do to us on the patrol what's the most likely thing the enemy is going to do to us on this patrol whether it be ied initiated ambush which was basically always the worst case scenario but the usual was pop shots random hand grenade sniper um or just an ied with no ambush afterwards um And then, so that was, yeah, that was situation. And then mission was, um, you basically were saying, Hey, we're doing a contact patrol in this sector, which you could also say is a security patrol. Um, but they basically decided at some point that every one of our patrols was a contact patrol because we were out looking for a fight. Um, we were looking for the enemy. They had to come out to play you know, we couldn't just shoot random people. Um, and so that's how that worked. Uh, and then X ex- execution is basically like, we're going to roll with this formation. We always use a tactical column. We'll get into, that's on the list a little bit later. Um, we're going to be, we're going to handle the danger areas with the bump method. Um, we're going to have, uh, hand and arm signals for different uh, or brevity codes for hey this is an ied or this is this you know like kind of make a bursting bomb with your hand that means like hey we see an ied but you don't want to say anything so that they don't trigger it if they're listening um and then admin logistics that's where you basically said uh this is the chain of command so you got the squad leader who takes over if he gets hit um who's in charge of carrying what like who's got the extra batteries for the radio who's got the litter because we i think we yeah we always patrolled with a foldable litter or a uh soft litter which is basically a stretcher for carrying wounded people um and then the c was communications command and communications that was like hey this is our radio frequency which on that deployment we actually use frequency hop, which is pretty cool. So not only was it we use crypto, which you know is it, it's digital, and this is above my head. I knew how to make it work on the radio, and I knew how to input it into the radio. But I mean, it's like it uses like super crazy algorithms to take the voice, change it into data ones and zeros, and then scramble it. Through a math equation and then if you have the same crypto on the other end you can unscramble it and you can hear what's getting said so then another level and and the first deployment was the only deployment we used this um because i think that we weren't fighting a an enemy that needed this but we frequency hop is basically the radio changes its frequency every second so it's constantly changing and This became a huge pain in the ass because some of the radios, uh, would, would, the time would slip, like the clock would be a little bit like every second on this radio's clock was a little bit longer than this radio's clock. So you'd be constantly like adjusting that and, you know, calling somebody and you could do, you could like link if you told, you know, this is hard to explain. So you could hear basically within five seconds or 15 seconds, there was a certain small amount of time where as soon as you got past that, you couldn't hear it anymore. But as you reached it, the quality started to get worse. And then all of a sudden, the two clocks are too far away. So as you heard it getting worse, and as an experienced radio operator, you kind of just knew, so you would you would ask for a radio check, and then you could plug some stuff into the, the radio, some punch some uh, buttons, And when they answered your radio check, your clock would automatically sync with their clock. And, I mean, this was super cool technology back in the day. Now everybody's got smartphones and stuff and GPS is in their watch. Like, I just bought a watch GPS. Um, But back then we had a a big Garmin GPS that gave you a grid and a radio. Um, So that pretty much does it for the actual brief format. Um, That might have been kind of boring for some of you. Um, so then we would step outside the briefing room and we would do what was called PCCs and PCIs. Um, so that was, they basically, it's one thing. And so the Marine Corps envisions you to do a PCC, like with your fire team leader at the hooch and then a PCI after the brief. And so that stands for, uh, actually, I don't know what that stands for. Pre, pre pre-combat check and pre-combat inspection. I believe, um, and basically all it is is making sure that you, each individual Marine has the personal gear that they're supposed to carry, and that the squad has all the squad gear that needs to be carried, and so you basically had a, like a laminated card, and you'd go down the list, and it'd be, we it would all be online, squad leader would be standing there, and he'd go... Everybody got your helmet? All right. Uh, that's obvious. Everybody got your neck protector? That's obvious. Everybody got your sappy plates in, and he would actually go and, like, because people would take him out because they're heavy and uncomfortable. We never did, but I'm guessing that's a problem, so he would bang on your your plates in your vest to make sure you had them, um, and then you would get to the squad stuff, so he'd be like, GPSs, and so then there was, like, two of us that carried GPSs, and then extra batteries for the GPS, and you'd hold them up. Or in the, or it'd be, like, sledgehammer and bolt cutters, uh, like, breaching gear, and someone would hold it up. Or the soft litter that I mentioned earlier. Or radio, extra batteries, extra radio, like, backup radio, extra batteries for that. Um, night vision goggles. Like, you made sure everybody had everything that we needed on the patrol. Um, and I, I touched on squad gear, because we basically, like, who's got the two AT4s, which that's a a shoulder launched one-time use, uh, like rocket, uh, kind of looks like a bazooka. If you know anything about history, like World War II. Um, so then, okay, we get the blessing. We head up to the clearing barrel, which I think if you watched the video, you saw the barrel where someone, you know, that's where we all racked together. Um, cause we used to do it individually. But there's always, there's people close enough to the base where they can hear and count how many people go condition one by putting around in the chamber. And so they, you know, we'd intercept stuff sometimes where they're like, hey, 14 people are about to leave the wire or however many. So we got a, we had a system where we'd all get online, we'd all aim at the deck, and then it'd be like three, two, one, and we'd all rack at once. And so, so no one could be listening and tell how many people are about to leave the wire that's also commonly used when you're doing mobile stuff as it's used like three, two, one, everybody start their engine at the same time, because otherwise you could hear like one tank, turn on second tank, turn on or truck, turn on, you know, so you could, you could hear how many things are, are about to happen. So during this time, like right after that, as the radio operator, I'd call in and I'd request permission to leave the wire and they would, uh, I mean, 99.9% of the time they would grant us, but if something changed or something like that, that's when they'd be like, Hey, senior squad leader, the COC, and then they'd work on something. And then, you know, you'd basically be like, uh, 12 packs requesting permission to leave the wire. And they'd say granted. So then we would start leaving the wire, which you kind of, there's like a serpentine of, of, uh, C wire or barbed wire. And you would snake through that, and then as you rolled out, you'd start getting into your formation. And the most common formation that we used on that deployment, which is kind of the formation that we always use in urban situations, is a tactical column. And basically all that is, is you have two lines of people on either side of the road, kind of hugging the buildings, um, but they're they're staggered. So it's like, if you were to draw a line between all the different Marines, it'd be point man, kind of in the more in the center than everybody else, and then he'd basically do a zigzag down the road. And, and so, that way, you aren't in a ranger file, which you can get taken out by, um, like a machine gun up to your front, or if you're in a straight line, like a uh, skirmisher line, where you're basically all shoulder to shoulder moving forward obviously spread out but they both have their advantages and disadvantages and in an urban environment the tactical column's the best because as we get hit with something like from the front or from the side everyone's at least somewhat close to cover like you have a corner to take um or something like that um so as we'd be patrolling there'd be you know, everyone's looking at every window, everybody's aiming, kind of checking every window, looking down every alley, everybody's pieing it off is what we called, called it, and basically you're like cutting the hole or the thread into like pie slices. As you move past it, you're starting looking in the far side, and then as you're leaving, you're, you're looking sort of back into the window or into the doorway or into the, the little alleyway or whatever it is. Um, but anytime you got to like a, like a road crossing or a field crossing, um, it it was what we call a danger area. And so there's different types. They're all basically the same thing, but you have a linear danger area. So like if you come perpendicular to a road and this could be in a forest or coming down like a urban area, and then you get to like a boulevard. And so you look right or left. And the enemy can hit you and shoot at you for a long ways in either direction. And you just need to cross over. And so we would basically someone would post up, like the point man would stop. The 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 and we usually sent two across at once. So the point man second guy would stop. The two people behind them would take the corner, and then Or the back, there's different ways of doing it, and it kind of depends on the danger area. But sometimes, if it's a big one, you'd bring the last guys up. Like, we'd all halt. They'd bring the guys in the back of the formation up. They'd cover down the road, and then the rest of the squad would move over two by two. And they'd set up security on the other side. And so then, everybody's covered as you run across, and then you would take over security on the other side, and the squad would start moving forward at the same speed that we were going before we sprinted across. Um, that one probably needs a visual a visual aid. Um, but we basically got in a really good rhythm where everyone knew exactly what to do. You would basically... Like, we would never slow down or speed up, it felt like. It felt like everything we got good enough to where yeah, within the squad, kind of like a millipede's legs, I guess you could say. Like within the squad, yeah, we'd have this little hurdle that we had to get over, but the squad itself would just continue moving at the same speed. And uh, that has to do also with uh, like walls. And so sometimes we'd draw our our route going through people's houses. And so we'd basically, there'd be like a six foot wall or eight foot wall, And we'd kind of do the same thing and we would just hop the wall. And we became so good at it and we'd just do it all day. We'd just be hopping these walls. And then you'd go to the back of the house and you'd hop their other exterior wall and then you'd go through the other yard and then get to the edge of their yard and then hop a wall and then cross the street. So it was just like danger area after danger area after danger area after danger area. Um, And... You would, sometimes you get shot at, but a lot of times you didn't. Most of the times we got shot at when we were leaving a uh, LP or OP or a patrol base, which are sort of the same thing. Um, We didn't do a lot of LPs on this deployment. LPs are more uh, for like an urban environment, or not, sorry, not an urban environment, more of like a a jungle environment or forest environment, where you're basically... You can't see that far because of the forest so you have you know you send a fire team out and they set up an LP and their whole mission is just to listen so it's a listening post and they're there and they're being super quiet and they're doing really good light discipline it's the middle of night and they're listening for a unit moving through the woods a really cool example of this is if you've seen the show Pacific there's a scene where a squad gets punched out or maybe it's a whole platoon and Chesty Puller who's a famous marine is the battalion commander and the LP calls on the phone and it's like hey you got the whole jap army coming your way and so he you know the colonel knows okay there's about to be a huge attack on the main defensive line and when you're out there you're kind of exposed So a lot of times we use LPOP as like one word, kind of like PCCs, PCIs. It sort of is like one thing. And an OP is an observation post. And so this is something where you actually have a good field of view. And this is something that we did a lot more um, in Iraq. And so this is basically because it was an urban environment and we weren't really doing any patrolling uh, or any, you know, there wasn't anywhere to hang out outside. It was a very dense, uh, urban area. So we would find a house that looked like it was tall enough to see, and we would take over the house, uh, which the way that the rules were, was they had 60 seconds to answer their door or else we broke it down. So knock on the door, usually an Iraqi person, man or woman would answer the door, and we'd basically be like, teptiche which meant like search. So we'd come in, we'd do a quick search of the house. Um, almost never found anything. <laughs> like, very rarely did we find anything. Um, and the people were always very polite. I mean, we were the occupying <laughs> army and we were very heavily armed. So it doesn't surprise me that they were very polite. Um but we'd move them in and we'd usually we, at the beginning we'd like make sure we kept a really close eye on them and kept them in like one room, like asked them, you know, we didn't, we weren't like pushing them into a room and then like holding them at gunpoint. We were just sort of like, Hey, can you hang out in this room while we're here? We're going to leave. Um, if we ever broke anything, we usually gave them a little bit of money. We never left trash. Like we always brought trash bags and any of our MRE trash we'd always pick up. But, We would set up some sort of a watch rotation, and then basically turn the the house into a mini-fob. So you'd have people resting, you'd have me with the radio almost always listening to the radio, um, but then you'd have people up in the windows looking out in all directions. And this was actually pretty chill, because, you know, we'd patrol for 20 minutes, and then we'd hang out in a building for an hour or two, and then we'd get up and we'd patrol again. Um, And we almost... My platoon, my squad, I don't think we ever got attacked when we were actually in a house. I think the best time to hit us, when we got hit a lot, was when we were getting up and we were like leaving the house. So they knew we were in the house. They they called their buddies or notified whoever they needed to notify, and guys would move in. And so as we'd be leaving is when we'd get ambushed real quick with either pop shots or like a hand grenade or something like that is just a good time to hit us because basically they're insurgents so they get to decide when they attack us and when they don't and i kind of alluded to this when marines are in like a fight we're showing up with everything the bad news don't do too good so they like to catch us with our pants down kind of a thing when we're discombobulated like we're trying to start the formation up or we're all kind of stacked up inside the walled compound the yard of the house and we're about to punch out the, the gate and get back rolling on the street. Because even when we're patrolling, we're still really good at reacting to contact front, contact right, left. Um, so they like to hit us when we're kind of like halfway across the danger area. Or uh, like all bottled up coming through a gate or something. Um, and they're just it was pretty amazing how good they were at timing it. Because I feel like a lot of variables that have to go into that, you know, they're moving around, there's other squads patrolling that they're dodging, and they're a lot more formidable enemy than I think anybody in America really knew, and I don't, I don't think that the media or the government or the generals, I, I like to blame the generals a lot, I think that they kind of wanted to paint this really positive picture about what was going on. And, like, no, these dudes are organized and they know what they're doing. Um, Try not to get political with this podcast unless it pertains to um, this, uh, you know, my experience in combat. So, another thing which you could kind of say is interchangeable with LPOPs or patrol bases. And so, this kind of became more prevalent towards the end of the deployment where... Cause we went from patrols where we do like two or three patrols a day, um, you know, like four hour patrols, basically it eventually evolved into one two week patrol. So, um, we would leave the wire at the first day of our two week patrol cycle and we'd be out there until two weeks later we'd come back and we would get resupplied by the mobile units. They'd come and drop off uh, MREs to us and like pick up our trash and stuff and, um, or pick up anything that we didn't need. They bring us water because we we always had cases of water bottles. Um, but when sometimes, because we were out there for so long, we obviously needed places to rest and, and not even just for like a couple hours. Like we actually would go, all the squads would, be out at once. So the whole platoon would be patrolling around three different squad or two different squads moving around. And we would set up a patrol base where we'd have a, you know, the whole platoon in one house. And then from there we would patrol out of that and come back to there. And then we'd move the patrol base every like 12 hours or something like that. And then we'd have small unit, sometimes even smaller than a squad, like just a fire team. Out patrolling around like a small security patrol around the patrol base. It just you know it's it's you got to be random because if you have a schedule, that's the other thing. Is if you have some sort of set schedule where you're you know every day at three o'clock we leave the wire and we walk these exact blocks. Um, yeah, you're all gonna die because they fig- they're all just observing us all the time and like writing down when we leave, where we go. So everything was random and. In the patrol base, you know, that that so kind of the more long term stays at these people's houses was one thing that's kinda interesting is that when we'd come into houses in the middle of the night they'd all be sleeping. And so we try to be quiet. So we'd try to sneak in if we could into their house or we'd knock on the door quietly and we'd come in, you know? And they almost they all had like fully furnished houses. But none of them slept in the beds, it seemed like. It seemed like they would all just kind of be, and this might be because there was no electricity at night, we turned the electricity off every night because we controlled the hydroelectric dam, so we would turn it off. So not every house had a generator, and those that did, you know, it's a small little generator, and so they were, they were working like one little heater. And they had this, like, certain type of heater, it kind of looked like a jukebox, or like a uh, pachinko machine I think they're called like it had like the design was sort of the same um, but it was like a little about the size of a radiator in an apartment building uh, like an old brick apartment building and it had infrared heater on the front that kind of pushed heat out and then it also had a little area on the top for like keeping drinks warm or cook even cooking stuff you could like cook. we'd cook cans of soup on there and stuff Um, but, uh, we'd come into the house and the whole family would just be in a pile, like in front of that heater only. And so we would let them, you know, we would always have a Marine, uh, some Marines awake, and then we would all punch out and find places to sleep, which included usually like right in these people's beds. (laughs) We would just like go in their master bedroom and there'd be like two or three Marines sleeping in their bed pretty messed up, uh, in hindsight, but, uh, or all over their couches or a lot of them had these, like, they would have a room just full of the little pads, uh, that would like fold out. So it'd be kind of like a little chair and then you'd fold it out and it'd be like a little, not a cot, but it'd just be like a pad that lays on the floor to give you a little bit of cushion. And so the best sleep we got, the most rest we got was, well, besides K3 and TCP, what was definitely on these patrols because we'd come in these houses and we'd be sleeping on like a nice couch or in like a bed an actual bed uh stuff like that a lot of times we'd like hang out with the people if it wasn't the middle of the night uh we'd hang out with these people and we'd talk about stuff and it was funny because they it would be like who invented electricity saddam who who invented this airplane saddam because uh, saddam basically told his people that he he did all this stuff, and uh, famously in the Battle of Fallujah, you can find pictures of it and stuff. There's a there was an amusement park that actually had a lunar lunar lander, and it said USA on it, and it was like a ride, you know, in Fallujah. And when at, like the story behind it is the people in Iraq were told that Saddam Hussein himself designed and built the moon lander and gave it to us so that we could land on the moon um so yeah history's these people's his view of history was kind of skewed because saddam was such an impressive asshole um also it, it was weird because you'd meet veterans from the uh from desert storm you know you'd be in their house and you'd look on the wall and there'd be like a picture of them in desert storm or there'd be like a A painting that they painted of Desert Storm. Um, There was one that was pretty funny where it was like a Iraqi soldier cutting the head off of like two dragons, and one of the dragons had a uh, police hat from from the UK. Isn't there like a certain name for the police in UK? I don't know. I'm I'm drawing a blank. But the 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 constable, they'd have a constable hat, and then the other one had a Uncle Sam hat, and it's like a dragon, and he's like cutting it off. I I thought that was really cool, and it was it's funny because my dad fought in Desert Storm, so I'm like meeting the other side of that war. So yeah, we we would chill, and then we would punch out smaller patrols from there, and then we'd ask for resupplies and stuff like that. When it was time to come back in the wire, which was either after our small small patrol you know, a couple hour patrol, or then later in the deployment after two weeks, uh, same thing, we'd, we'd be coming close to the base, we'd call them up, uh, request permission to enter and how many bodies we've got so that we don't get lit up in the middle of the night by somebody on post who's half asleep, um, and then we'd sneak in the wire, we'd all we'd all go condition three, which condition three basically means you take the round out of the chamber You pop your magazine out, you take the round from your chamber, put it back in the magazine, put the magazine in the bottom, back in your magazine well, in your rifle, condition three. Um, Then we'd go and we'd do a debrief. Uh, And this became a lot less serious towards the end of the deployment, especially after two weeks. Like, what's the debrief? It's like five minutes. It's like, hey, I think we need to work on this a little bit. But during the really hot time towards the beginning of the deployment... It was a really good time of hey did this is when you'd bring up like did anybody see anything suspicious when we got hit with that grenade did anybody see anything leading up to that that's important did anybody see anything after that that's important um we'd also kind of critique ourselves hey you know on that ambush we didn't move quick enough or when we found that IED, people were way too close to it, or we didn't do a good job of, you know, keeping the civilians from getting too close, or, it, you know, this was just our, our basic 10, 15, 20-minute talk on uh, how the how the, uh, how the the patrol went, what we could work on, yada, yada, stuff like that. And then we'd also do a gear, gear inventory. So we'd use that same checklist of all the stuff that we had to bring with us. We'd say, "Okay, show me this." And this was actually a little bit bigger because it was like, "Hey, everybody hold up their M16 and they knew how many the squad was supposed to have. Everybody hold up their uh your night vision. How many we got? Everybody hold up your your laser that attaches to your rifle." And you'd show it, you know, different things like that. And we'd we'd make sure that we had everything that we left the wire with radios included um and then we would uh either jump right into doing a working party a lot of times we'd get home and there'd be chow the the cooks would be making some food so we'd get like right from the debrief we'd go grab chow um which was always nice and so yeah that's the general uh That's the general layout of a typical patrol. And uh, if you have any questions, leave a comment below. Um, As always, check out my podcast. um, Check out my YouTube video. And if you like it, share, like, subscribe, all that stuff. And uh, thank you for listening.